You're listening to Time in the Word. It must have been an awkward moment when Paul and Peter, two pillars of the church, had a confrontation during a church potluck. The confrontation was unexpected. Paul and Peter had been friends ever since they got acquainted in Jerusalem. The last time they were together, Peter had given Paul the right hand of fellowship. But this time, Paul was opposing Peter right to his face. Everyone knew there had been some sort of argument in Antioch, and it would have been easy to use the incident to discredit Paul's gospel. Yet according to Paul, this present situation was the final proof that he was a genuine apostle of the one true gospel of free grace by showing that even he had the authority to rebuke another apostle who stepped out of line. In part one of Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16, Dr. Gonzalez helps us understand why Paul was so upset with Peter resulting in his rebuke. As God ministers to you through this series of studies, and as you experience God's grace in your own life, share these podcasts with others so that they too may be blessed by God's word and his amazing grace. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It was an awkward moment, to say the least. It's always embarrassing when a fight breaks out or a dispute breaks out in a church. This one was a real doozy. For one thing, it took place during the church potluck where everybody was joined together and were supposed to be having fun, enjoying the fellowship one with the other. For another thing, the confrontation or the individuals involved in this particular situation were the pillars of the church, Peter and Paul. We're certain that the confrontation was completely unexpected. It happened. Something happened and it caused a reaction on the part of Paul, but it certainly wasn't planned. Nobody was expecting for this to happen. The two men had been, had been friends pretty much from the first time that they had met uh, or for his first journey to Jerusalem, where he went to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter. In fact, the last time they had been together during the second visit to Jerusalem, Peter had given Paul the right hand of fellowship. But this time, Paul is opposing, notice that the text says, right to his face, everyone knew there had been some kind of argument in Antioch. And it certainly would have been easy to use this incident to discredit Paul's message, Paul's gospel. Yet according to Paul, and that's why you have to, you know, we think of verses like this as maybe not that important. And we tend to skim through these verses to the verses or the sections of Scripture that we all think are more important. But if you read through this text carefully, you will find that according to Paul, this present situation was the final proof that he was a genuine apostle of the one true gospel of free grace by showing that even he had the authority to rebuke an apostle who stepped out of line. 
Now, to understand why Paul was so upset with Peter, because this was a public thing, this was not something that happened behind closed doors, it certainly helps us to understand something about dining habits for folks even today, but certainly in, in the context of, of this uh, situation. Eating was a cultural event. Jewish dining habits created a crucial problem for the church in the cosmopolitan city of Antioch, a city made up of probably half a million people, of which about 10% of that were Jews. It was really a melting pot. This was a large cosmopolitan city. But these dining, the Jewish dining habits created a crucial problem for the church in this city. So the Antiochian church became a multicultural melting pot. And you may recall that that is the, 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 the city in which, for the first time, believers were called what? Christians. I mean, there was something so unusual about these group of people, these multicultural group of people who came together, that somebody had to come up with a name for them because they were different from anything else they had ever seen. And Christians is the name that, that is used for them here for the first time in the Scriptures. Antioch, therefore, became the first place where the early church had to wrestle with the issue of table fellowship. You recall in verses 1 through 10 that we looked at last week, at their former meeting in Jerusalem, you recall that the apostles had already agreed that the Gentiles belonged in the church. That issue was settled during that second visit of Paul to Jerusalem. They didn't, in other words, they didn't have to obey or keep the Old Testament law to be saved. And at the same time, it was still appropriate for Jewish Christians to maintain their heritage by keeping the ceremonial law. Just as the Gentiles could continue to behave as Gentiles, not, not as sinning pagans, but you know, you, the Gentile did not become a Jew in order to become a Christian, that's what I'm meaning. The Gentile could continue to be a Gentile, so the Jew could continue to be a Jew. While both believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and now both living under the, the, the instruction uh, that Paul now had delivered to the church. But two questions surface. How is a Jew, even a believing Jew, supposed to relate to a Gentile when they both now worshipped in the same church? A second question that comes up is, did they have to eat together? Table fellowship with Gentiles for the Jew had always been forbidden. How could Jewish Christians keep kosher if they had to eat with Gentiles who ate the wrong foods, prepared the wrong way, and oftentimes offered to the wrong gods. Now, the apostles had already settled the theological question, right? How does a Gentile belong in the church, and how is a Gentile saved? That theological question had been settled. We saw that in verses uh, 1 through, through 10. They had not settled the practical question of fellowship with the Gentiles. Now, the Gentile is saved through grace, by faith in Christ, the Gentile is welcome to the church. They address the theological question of how is a Gentile saved, but they never address the issue of how do Gentiles and Jews converted to Christ worship together. They never cared for the practical issue, so this surfaces. One well-known theologian summarized the problem like this, and I quote, The Gentile Christians it will be remembered, 
had been released from the obligation of being circumcised and of undertaking to keep the Mosaic law. The Jewish Christians, on the other hand, had not been required to give up their ancestral mode of life. But how could the Jewish Christians continue to live under the law if they held companionship with Gentiles in a way which would render the strict observance of the law impossible? Good question. How do we now fellowship? How do we now together sit down at the table and have fellowship? How do we now worship? Keep your place in Galatians 2 and go with me to Acts chapter 10 for a moment. God revealed a radical solution to this problem in a vision. You recall that Peter one day was praying before lunch, and the following happens. Look at chapter, uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. He saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, and reptiles, and birds of the air. In other words... The sheet was full of animals that Jews were absolutely forbidden to eat. And then we're told in, in, in verse 13 that a, heaven, uh, that a voice from heaven said this, which is very remarkable. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. God had to be kidding. Peter says, look at verse 14, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then in verse 15, the voice told him, What God has made clean, do not call common. Through this vision, God was preparing Peter to take the gospel to a Gentile. Immediately afterwards, he had, he had been called to Caesarea where he baptized a Roman by the name of Cornelius. We know that from Acts 10.48. Peter, and so should we, learned a vital lesson from all of this. Look at verses 34 and 35 of Acts 10. We can't miss this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. And we know for a fact that later on, he faced public criticism for his actions. And in chapter 11, verse 17, he said this, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us. Listen to that. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. What Peter eventually came to understand is that the vision was not about evangelism, though it was about that. It was also about fellowship. Because we knew the issue of evangelism had been settled. How is a Gentile saved? Well, saved the same way a Jew is saved. But now they, they come together, what happens? And the lesson that Peter came to learn from this was that this, you know, was not just an issue of evangelism, it was also an issue about fellowship. Go back to Galatians chapter 2. And you'll notice in verse 12 that Paul wrote that Peter was eating with the Gentiles, meaning that it was his usual custom 
Peter's, to sit down with them at the table. Peter did not have any scruples about sharing a meal with his uncircumcised brothers in Christ. Thus he was doing what he was doing. His radical solution for the problem of table fellowship was to consider them not separate, but equal. So that's kind of the context as to all this dining baggage that people were bringing into the church with them. To an Orthodox Jew, eating with pagans was an act of defiant rebellion. So imagine when these men who came from James, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, imagine what they thought when they came into Antioch. Now remember, James, the brother of Jesus, of the Lord, had given Paul the right hand of fellowship. Now the question becomes, who were these men? Well, let me share two insights from two different uh, individuals. Who were these men? Were they actually sent from James? Or were they members of James, James's circle in the church, but without a direct commission from James? Fortunately for them, Paul cloaks them with anonymity. But he seems to lay on James the responsibility for their disturbance in the church in Antioch. Another scholar says, later at the Jerusalem council, James writing to the believers in Antioch, which was a later, the council would have happened after the second visit, after the visit referred to in chapter 2. And he says, writing to the believers in Antioch, refer to certain persons who, as he, it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 24, have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds. Though saying in that same verse that they had not really come out with the authority or the commission of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. That most likely fits best. These are not emissaries sent by James to spy out Paul and the believers in Antioch. These are just men who belong to the church in Jerusalem, were maybe part of an inner circle, but had gone out to see what Paul was up to. That seems to fit much better. So, what is, in summary, it's likely that these men from James were simply zealous members of the ultra-right-wing party within the Palestinian movement. So they go up to check up on Peter. And the first thing they noticed was how lax Peter had become regarding his old traditions. He was eaten with Gentiles. I mean, he was practically living, as Paul would later put it in verse, 20, uh, in verse 14, like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So the pressure group, these individuals who come from Jerusalem, put Peter in a very awkward situation. And we're told in verse 12, this, the uh, last part of verse 12, that he found himself fearing the circumcision party. So Peter essentially did an about face. He did a 180. He stopped inviting Gentiles to sit at the table. He started eating at, on the other side, or at, in the other side of the basement of the church. And, you know, perhaps, I mean, this is just a, 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 a thought of my own, perhaps, since many of the believers in the early church were meeting in private homes, as opposed to in a, in a building like this one, perhaps he stopped eating with them altogether, 
even for the Lord's Supper. What Peter did was not a matter of principle. It was a case, at least this is the way Paul saw it, it was a case of cowardice. From this, if we, if we draw some practical learning out of this, from this we learned that even a great Christian can fall into sin, and more than once. If I remember Peter, you know, we know Peter for having been impulsive and having done things that were inconsistent with who he really was in Christ. Now that's not an, that should never serve as an excuse for us. Oh, since, since such great saints have sinned, then it's okay for me to sin. No, it's a warning. If such great saints can fall into sin, who are we to say we won't? We also learn how necessary it is for Christians to have the courage to defend the gospel against all opposition. Here's a lesson to be learned, including opposition that comes from within the church. For that was the circumstance that we're looking at right now. This was not somebody from outside the church coming in and acting hypocritically. This was Peter. He was a Christian, a pillar. And Peter's for, poor example teaches us something also that we ought to stick up for the gospel, that it takes courage to stand up for the gospel. Here's the issue. When the fear of people overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. Or we are at least likely to act hypocritically. As someone once said, unless we are willing to stand up for God at work or fill in the blank, your neighborhood, at school, wherever, on Monday, unless we are willing to stand up for God at work on Monday, we are just pretending at church on Sunday. And there's a lot of truth to that statement. You see, and we'll see this as we get into the remainder of this section. What we say we believe is important, but it will never be as important as the way we live out what we say we believe. Those are two different things. Now, it's not to say that we are going to be 100% faithful to all things 100% of the time. Though that is the goal. We are being conformed to the image of Christ so that we might live our lives in a more Christ-like way. But in the process of sanctification, we're going to stumble. But one of the things we have to be realize, and I often use this word when I have conversations with people on various topics, we have to be very intentional about our faith and living out that faith. Who wants to talk to me if the way I live screams the opposite of everything I say I believe. What my life is saying is that what I claim to believe, I really do not believe. At least for them, that's the perception they get. But as we go to the second section of, of this message, the issue here has nothing to do with Paul feeling threatened about Peter and thus making a public spectacle of Peter, there was something humongous at stake here. And we've covered these through the first few sessions of what we've covered so far. At which end we come out of that debate will determine which gospel we are proclaiming when we're presenting a gospel to people. And according to Paul, there are many alternate gospels, which according to Paul are no gospels at all, but people who are telling them or people who are hearing them aren't necessarily aware of that. You have many religions. I mean, you have, for example, 
maybe on a fairly regular basis, you have Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at your door. They are faithful to that which they have accepted as truth. Whatever gospel has been given to them, not only have they believed it, but they are now proclaiming it. And they go door, door to door, more so than Christians do. What's at stake here? Those who have accepted that gospel are still lost, according to Paul. And they're presenting a gospel to others who are also believing it and who are thus remaining lost because that alternate gospel is no gospel at all. See, that's why I say this is not a, an issue of just principle. This went to the core, to the essence of the gospel message. And if we get that wrong, what else is there to talk about? If you get the gospel wrong, you at some point get Christ wrong. And if you get Christ wrong, you by definition have to get God wrong. And if you've gotten all that wrong, you've probably gotten Scripture wrong. It's unessential that once you topple it, it just becomes a domino effect on all the rest of the essentials. Does it not? Look at liberal Protestant denominations today. They've given it all up. All of it. What gospel they're proclaiming? An alternate gospel. 